The reading is from Romans 11, verses 11 to 24. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultured olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Thank you so much, Kate, for uh, reading to us from uh, Romans 11, 11 to 24. And we're so glad that we can have Andy Diggins with us this morning. And he's going to be helping us to understand uh, this passage. So, Andy, thank you so much. Please, uh, please lead us. Thank you. Over to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning, even in this, this uh, slightly strange way. Can I just say, uh, as a, an ordinary member of the family of Oak Hall, a huge thank you to those on the leadership team and, and all those who've got specific roles and responsibilities in the church for the way that you've been working hard to keep us all connected in these, in these difficult days. We really, really do appreciate it. Well, it seems that we've been in the book of Romans for some time. There's one more week to go uh, after this. Um, so uh, you've got the second to last uh, illustration this morning. I don't know if, uh, if, as we've been going through this book, something has really stood out for you. Uh, for me, it was the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. At the end of chapter 8, we find that the author of this letter, Paul, the greatest missionary probably who's ever lived, he's on a mountaintop. He's just lost in the love of God and in wonderful poetic language. 
he tells us that there is absolutely nothing. There's nothing above us. There's nothing beside us. There's nothing below us. There is nothing and nobody. There is no power that can separate us from the love of God. And when you read those words, you would have thought, well, Paul could not be happier. And then you begin chapter 9. And you must remember that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't divide it up into chapters. So for him, it was just the very next sentence. And he says, I tell you what, I'm heartbroken. He, he uses words, he says he's in deep sorrow. There is unending, unceasing anguish in his heart. And you know, in a strange way, I found that so encouraging. I love the Bible because it's real. It isn't some fairy tale where everything is sugar-coated and everyone goes off in the end and they all live happily ever after. And what I learned by the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 is that it's perfectly okay in this life to go through heartache and heartbreak and deep sorrow and yet at the same time know that deep joy of knowing that God loves us. And Paul, at the end of chapter 8, says, if you want to know what the love of God looks like, look at the Lord Jesus. Well, Paul's particular heartbreak was for his own people, the Israelites, the people of Israel. You see, some 27 years had passed since the greatest event in history, the Lord Jesus, God's own son, had been brutally killed and yet came to life again. And ever since that day, the church, as we know it today, was beginning to grow and grow and grow, not just in Jerusalem amongst the people of Israel, but throughout that country, beyond that country's shores, into the Roman Empire, and even beyond that. And the message, the good news, we call it the gospel, it's just what it means, the good news of Jesus was being told in all these different places. What is this good news? What is this gospel? That somehow Jesus really was God come to us. That though he was dead, he really did come back to life again. And that somehow his death scored a victory over death itself. Defeated death itself, such that those people who come to him and who put their trust in him will live eternally with him. And Paul's heartache was, was this great invitation that was spreading through uh, like wildfire through different places. And specifically his heart here is focused on Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire at the time, when his people were hearing that good news, they were rejecting it. And it seemed to be that though the church was growing, it was growing mainly by not his people accepting the Lord Jesus, but people who were known as Gentiles. And Gentiles is just a, a word that's used in the Bible to describe every other person in the world who is not one of the people of Israel. Now, we heard last week from Dan how that the 
Israelites had hardened their hearts against this great message of salvation. And God was allowing them, those hard-hearted people, to continue with their hard hearts. And if you read chapter 9, it's as if Paul, he's part of his anguish, he's looking at his people and he's saying to himself, you had everything going for you. You had 2,000 years of history going for you when the living God, almighty God, revealed himself to you in a way that he revealed himself to no one else in the world. They could look back on their history for these 2,000 years going all the way back to Abraham and see the promises of God and the prophecies of God and the very presence of God. They knew him. He led them in an unmistakable way. They knew it. And all the time that God was with these people, he demonstrated his great power and who he was by great signs and wonders. And now they came, as it were, to the culmination of the ministry of Israel, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the one who was their Messiah, their promised one. And they rejected him. They couldn't see him for who he was. And as I thought of this, I have to say, I just paused and I thought, well, What if Paul was a missionary, not back then, but was a missionary today? And not out there in the Middle East, but right here in England. Uh, I've got a feeling that he might be saying exactly the same to us. Look, you've got everything going for you. You've got the Bible in, in, in 20 different versions. You've got unnumbered books that would help you to understand what the Bible means. You've been brought up with a system of education where most of us can read for ourselves what the Bible says. He might point to people in other countries who only have little fragments of the Scriptures uh, and yet deem those fragments so precious. Who've been brought up in a system where they couldn't read for themselves and are relying on other people to explain what it means to them. Yeah, I think, I think that Paul could stand in England and say, look guys, you've got everything going for you. Even the way that we can meet week after week. We're not meeting under threat from some strange government. We're not meeting under danger. We're not likely to be arrested because we say that we're a Christian or imprisoned or tortured or even killed. And you may say, well, that's extreme, but that is the reality for so many thousands of our brothers and sisters across the world today. And we're free from it. I think Paul might look at England and say, guys, you've got everything going for you. Why is it that you are rejecting the Lord Jesus? Well, back to Paul's letter and our passage this morning. We, we left it last week that although these Israelites had hardened their hearts against the Messiah, against the Lord Jesus, we find in verse 11, that is not the end of the story. And if we drop down to verse 15, we find that tantalizingly Paul says there is going to be hope for these people, even though their hearts are hard at the moment. It is not too late for them. 
there will come a time and an opportunity where they will have the opportunity again to accept the Lord Jesus. And when they do, it will mean for them nothing less, verse 15 says, than life from the dead. Well, I'm not going to uh, tread on the toes of Phil, who's going to come next week and put some more meat on those bones. But in the meantime, most of our passage this morning, Paul turns his attention to those Gentile believers. You see, if you look at verse 18, you'll see that the word boasting is used. If you look at verse 20, you'll see that the word arrogant is used. There was a tension coming into the church. What was happening was that because these Gentile believers were coming into the church in great numbers, and the people of Israel, a few of them were coming in, but not in anywhere near the same uh, numbers, the Gentiles were beginning to feel a little bit superior. As if in some way that they were special compared to the people of Israel. And uh, that could have split the church. And Paul takes action. And in this little passage that we've got this morning, he, he sets out why for these Gentile believers, and by the way, don't forget, we are also Gentile believers if we're part of the church. Why there is no room in God's church for boasting and for arrogance and for feeling superior uh, over any other people. Verse 22, he says, what your focus should be is on God's kindness. He says, consider it. Continue in it. God's kindness is another word for grace that we've been thinking about over recent weeks. If we are part of God's church this morning, it is only by his grace to us. We could never deserve it. We could never get there on our own. But also what Paul is setting out uh, to these Gentile believers is God's sovereignty. He is saying to them, Yes, of course your salvation is real and personal and wonderful and you have been blessed by God. But God is working a much bigger picture than the one that you can see. So first of all, in verse 11, he says, Salvation has come to you to make the people of Israel envious. No, he didn't make a mistake. He comes back to that same word, envious, envy, uh, when we look at verses 13 to 14. Paul says, my ministry is amongst the Gentiles. I'm going to take this good news of Jesus to the Gentiles and I'm going to work as hard as I can in bringing this message to them. But my hope is that as I work amongst the Gentiles, my own people will become envious. Envious when they see God's blessing being poured out on other people. Envious that they might want it for themselves. And he goes on to say, uh, to explain, look, this isn't a new thing. This isn't an afterthought by God. Look back, he's talking to his people, look back in your own history. And he uses a verse from Deuteronomy right the way back in the time of Moses. In fact, he quoted it, this same verse, earlier on uh, in chapter 10 of, uh, of Romans, verse 19. Where God had prophesied, predicted the future. He says, I will make the people of Israel envious by those who are not a nation. 
And that's another way of explaining who the Gentiles are, because the Gentiles belong to all sorts of different countries, from every tribe, from every nation. They're not just one nation. And God is saying, I'm making all these people who are not a nation, I'm going to use them to make the people of Israel envious. It was actually a great irony. You see, it was never meant to be like that. We haven't got time to look too much into the history, but if you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 4, God speaks to his people, the people he chose to reveal himself to the world through the people of Israel. And he had blessed them so much and he, he had revealed himself to those people in such a unique way that Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, you are meant to be a people where the nations who are all around you should be looking at you and saying, wow, your nation is a wonderful nation. Your God is a wonderful God. God intended that, that the people of Israel would be a wonderful, illuminated signpost to how wonderful belief in God can be and that those who were around them would look in and want it for themselves. But instead, they drifted away from the living God. And so God reverses the tables and says, I'm going to use the people who are surrounding you to make you envious of my blessing. But also just, we ought to pause because uh, there was something else that struck me as I was looking at this, and that is this word envy, or jealousy as we might say today, we'd say, well surely that's a bad thing. Aren't we taught that jealousy is a bad thing? And yet isn't God good? How can a good God use a bad thing to present his blessing to other people? Uh, and that's a good question. And the answer is, therefore, jealousy, moving people to be envious, is not always a bad thing. There has to be a, a part of it which is a good thing. And as I thought of this, a little illustration came to my mind. And I bought, uh, I bought a jar here. And I, I want you to imagine that this is a jar of baby food uh, with a spoon in it. And uh, that I am a loving mother. I've never been a loving mother, so just use your imaginations, but I'm a loving mother, and I want to give this food to my little toddler who's sitting in the high chair. Now, I know what that toddler doesn't know. I know that without this food, that toddler will die. That's how life works. That toddler must eat. And if they don't, they'll die. Well, if they don't for long enough. And I know as a loving mum that if I put this jar of food in front of the baby on the, on the high chair, it's not going to work. Uh, they'll just knock it off onto the floor or take the contents and rub it into their hair or do something strange like that. So what does the mum do? The mum takes a spoonful of the food and taunts the child, holds the spoon in front of the child and says, Oh, look at this. Isn't this just wonderful? Doesn't it, oh, doesn't it smell great? Uh, I'm sorry if I'm getting the words wrong. I've just never been a mum before. But I think it's along these lines, yes? And, and then that spoonful of food, instead of giving it to the child, the mother puts it into her own mouth with all sorts of lovely words like, mmm, yum, 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 this is so beautiful. What is the mother doing? The mother is moving that child to envy. The mother wants that child to see how good this food is 
and to want it for itself. And so the next spoonful goes into the child's mouth and suddenly the child, because it's envious, it's been driven to envy, wants that food for itself. Well, that's a, it's a bit of a dim illustration, I know. But that's what's going on here in this passage. God is moving people who the Gentiles who have received his blessing, he wants the people of Israel to see what that blessing means to others and to so want it for themselves. And then what Paul does is he uses a parable. It's very unusual for Paul to use parables. He doesn't normally speak in parables, but here he writes a parable. He uses a picture of a tree to be a picture of God's growing church. When I was looking at this, it reminded me of my, my mum. My mum used to love Gardener's Question Time. And I think it was a guy called Bob Flowerdew who was one of the presenters on Gardener's Question Time. And my mum loved her garden and she loved to tune in to Gardener's Question Time and, uh, and listen to Bob Flowerdew's great advice. Well, um, Paul in Romans 11, he's not quoting Bob Flowerdew, but he is quoting the Bob Flowerdew of his day. And that was a guy called Lucius Columella. He was a real guy. He was a contemporary of Paul. He was a person who had served in the Roman army and then he had taken up botany, which was always his hobby. And uh, believe it or not, although he lived some 2,000 years ago, some of his writings still exist today. And what we find out from his writings is that if I was a farmer and I was growing, if I was cultivating olive trees, uh, as many people would out in that part of the, the world, if I had a cultivated olive tree that wasn't producing fruit as it should, I would go out into the wild country, I would find a wild olive tree, and I would take a part of that wild olive tree and bring it back to my cultivated tree, graft it on, and amazingly, both the cultivated part of the olive tree and the bit that was grafted on both benefited from each other. Both were stimulated. It's a picture of the church. The church is, oh, it's just a, a, a huge collection of very strange people, uh, including me, you know, uh, uh, people that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. But the wonderful thing is that whoever we are in the church of God, we're meant to stimulate one another. And that's the picture that Paul is presenting here. And it becomes very clear as we, look at, as we look at this chapter that the cultivated olive tree is a picture of the people of Israel. They are the ones with that 2,000-year history behind them. They are the ones where, where they provide the roots, if you like, to this tree, going right the way back to the people known as the patriarchs. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and who God revealed himself in this unique way to them and through them made promises uh, which are still coming true even today. So that cultivated olive tree is a picture of the people of Israel and the wild olive tree, the people without all that history, the people who followed all sorts of things in, in their experiences, all sorts of gods and and following nature and one thing and another, they are the wild olive trees. They are the Gentiles. And we look at verse 16 in Romans 11, and we find that Paul says this cultivated olive tree 
has got holy roots. And he takes their mind back to their history, back to Abraham, back to Isaac, back to Jacob. Look how it all started, is what he is inferring. See how holy these roots are. See how God himself made them holy by bringing them together, making them into a great nation where he had a special relationship. God had a special relationship with those people. And then we get to verse 17 and it says, well, some branches have been broken off. And that was a picture, again, of the people of Israel, who, because of their hard hearts, currently are unbelieving. They are refusing to accept the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. They are rejecting the Lord Jesus as their Saviour. And so they're no longer part of this tree. Then They're not in the church as we would know it today. It's as if they've been broken off and they're in a heap on the side. And verse 17 goes on to say, but wild branches, yet they are the Gentiles, you have been grafted in to this holy tree. And understand, therefore, that you are being nourished by the roots of this holy tree, the roots of this cultivated tree, where it all began with, with God revealing himself to Abraham those some 2,000 years ago. I don't want to make too much of this link with Israel, but it is an exciting link. And no matter what country we are from, if we're Christians today, I believe we can get really excited and learn more of our own faith by looking at the history of the people of Israel. So many of God's promises were made through them, and they provide so many pictures for us today of how our faith came to be a reality and so in verse 18, he says to the, he says to the uh, Gentiles, the Gentile believers, look, it's that holy root that supports you. It's not the other way around. And so effectively, he is saying to them, look, there is no room for you to boast, to feel superior uh, to these people who are, who, who are not coming into the church in the great numbers that you are at the moment, but be assured, it is their holy root that is supporting you. It's not the other way around. And then the argument continues. And what Paul is doing, he's, he's putting the words of the argument into the mouths of the Gentiles. And so you get to verse 19, and he says, look, you say that the branches were broken off so that we could be grafted on. It's as if these Gentile believers have got a picture of a church that can only get so big. It's a wrong picture, by the way. There, there is no limit to the number of folk who can be part of God's church. But it's, it's as if there is. And they are saying, hey, look, these people, they've been taken away. They've been removed to make room for us so that we can be grafted in to this church of God. And verse 20 has got the answer. So Paul says, this is the question you're asking. Well, here's the answer, verse 20. He says, yes, but they were broken off through their unbelief. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, come to us. If you don't believe that his death was instead of your death, if you don't believe that he is the saviour, well, you're not part of the church. You cannot be. You are broken through unbelief. But then in verse 20, he says to these Gentile believers, and you are only there, you're only grafted in, so to speak, 
by faith. It says you stand by faith, but when I was studying this earlier in the last couple of weeks, um, I went back to the original language a little bit, and it seems that a better translation is, it needs the word only inserted. You stand only by faith. Nothing else. There is no room, Paul is saying to these Gentile believers, for arrogance. He's saying in verse 20, without faith, you wouldn't be there. However good you think you are, however special and superior you might feel, you are in God's church only because of faith. He has done everything. And all you have done is believed and received. And I'm not belittling that, because that's what we all need to do. We need to be brought to that point where we can see for ourselves the claims on our lives by the Lord Jesus and believe it for ourselves and receive it for ourselves. And when we do, we are, so to speak, grafted in to this church of God, this family that God is putting together. But Paul is making it quite clear to these Gentiles, without faith, yeah, you've got faith, it's a real faith, it's a wonderful faith, but without that faith, you wouldn't be in the tree. So there's no room for arrogance. And he points again to the grace of God. All the running, all the initiative has been taken by God. And then we come to what seems to be, uh, uh, well, it's a happy end. It's a tantalizing glimpse into what might be a happy end coming. First part of verse 23. He says that if the people of Israel do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Now I know here that I'm going to lose some of the gardeners amongst you. Up until now, you've been fine. You, you've said to yourself, yeah, that can work. You can, go to a, you can go to a wild olive tree and you can take a bit of it off and you can bring it to a cultivated olive tree and you can, gra and you can graft it on. And I understand that. And I understand that if you do that, then I can see how both bits can benefit from each other. I understand that. But now... You're telling me that a pile of dead branches that have been separated from that tree for maybe years can now be grafted back in? <laughs> that won't work. That actually would need a miracle. <laughs> and that is the point. You gardeners are absolutely right. But look at the end of verse 23. It says, For God is able to graft them in. God is able to do in your life and my life the impossible. God is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's the whole point of it. It reminded me as I was looking at this of Matthew's words. You remember Matthew? He was one of the followers of the Lord Jesus. We have his writings in the Bible, the book of Matthew. And if you look at chapter 19, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, who were also people of Israel, a hard truth. You see, they had grown up with the belief, almost with the arrogance, that they were so superior that when they died, the living God would look after them, irrespective of any decisions that they had made, just because they were the people of Israel. And Jesus told them that story that we probably learned in Sunday school. He said, no. 
Actually, there's a certain group of people, it would be easier for me to push a camel through the eye of a needle than it would be to get that group of people into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astounded. And, and we sometimes miss the point of this little scripture because we, we try to explain, we know it's impossible, we try to explain, well, what, what needle does he mean? Uh, and we come up with ideas like, well, could it be a sort of gate? Or could it be a little gate in a big gate? And could that be called the needles? And all of that. And when we go down that road of trying to explain what Jesus was saying about pushing a camel through a tiny hole in the top of a needle, we miss the point. Now, the disciples got it because they said, well, if it's that impossible, who then can be saved? They're saying to him, if that's the case, nobody could be saved. And Jesus responds to them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Our salvation, if we are a Christian this morning, if we are part of the church of God, it is because God has wrought in us a miracle. He's done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Our salvation is a miracle. But with God, all things are possible. And so tantalizingly, we look forward to next week when God is saying to his people, the people of Israel, I can graft them in. I am able to graft them in. I want to end with uh, an example. I, I'm going to take us back to uh, Gardner's question time. Uh, I had a friend. I know this guy. It's a true story. Uh, this guy, um, he lived in Croydon, but he really was a country guy. Uh, and uh, he moved when he could, after he got married, he moved his family to the country. And there he had a bigger garden and he wanted to keep some animals. So I know he had chickens and I know he had a goat. He might have had other animals as well. But he was kind of living the country life. But he was like my mum. He liked, on a Saturday, to listen to Gardener's Question Time and to the good advice by Bob Flowerdew. And, uh, and his ears really pricked up one Saturday when the announcer, person running that program, said, our next caller has got a question about a problem goat. And the person I know said, this is great, because I've got a goat, and I might pick up some general tips and hints about things that I could do with my goat, maybe. I won't get too much into his mind, but he was interested anyway. It was only when he listened to the caller that he realised that the person on the end of the phone was his own next-door neighbour. And the goat that he was complaining about was his own goat, the goat he owned. And for this man, suddenly it became personal. This programme was no longer about general hints and tips about how to keep goats. But now it was very personal, and it was all about his relationship with his next-door neighbour. And that is true of our passage this morning. You see, if you've picked up a little bit of history through it, well, that's great. If we've increased our knowledge about some aspect of it, that is great. But it misses the point. The whole point of this passage, like every other passage in Scripture, is to make it personal to you and to me and to make us realise that it's all about our relationship with the living God. 
And so what Paul would want to say to his people, what God would want to say to, through his word to all of us, keeping with the tree analogy, are you in the tree? This picture of God's most wonderful church that he has died to put together, are you in it? Are you in the tree? And verse 23 is as true for us as it is for the people of Israel. If we do not persist in unbelief, we're in. We can be in. How? Because God is able. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, whatever secrets are, are in our closet, so to speak, whatever we've thought, it doesn't matter. God is able. Phil brought to us, was it three weeks ago now, verse 9 of chapter 10. How simple it is. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then a miracle happens. And we're in the tree. And for us, it will be just like the people of Israel, it will be nothing less than life from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we just bow our hearts before you this morning, we want in our mind's eye to see again the reality of where we started our little time together understanding afresh, realizing maybe for the first time that Jesus really was God come to us. That though he really was dead, yet he really did have life restored to him. Understanding again, though we might not understand the how, we can take it by faith that his death was like no other death his death defeated death, such that those of us who put our trust in him will never die, but will live eternally with him. And so we pray, Father, in these strange times, these challenging days, that you might bring us to that point of challenge again, that that choice might be set before us in the same way as it was set before the Gentiles and the Jews in Rome all those years ago. And we pray that with your help, we will choose Jesus. We will choose life. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.